that text that uh, Betty read a minute ago from Isaiah 43 has been put to use in the church in very interesting ways. It seems for the last couple decades, when any church wants to change something or try something new, this is the go-to verse. Just slap Isaiah 43 on a poster with a dove or a flower, and you've got biblical approval for whatever you want to do. Voila, God's doing a new thing. Don't you perceive it? Let's say you want to have a herd of sheep milling around the sanctuary while the children's choir sing Psalm 23. What could go wrong? God is doing a new thing. Don't you perceive it? A stewardship campaign wants a 70% increase in giving. It's God's new thing. Who could argue with that? Let's have a Sunday where the pastor doesn't appear in person, but it just is a holographic image, kind of beamed down. It's God's new thing. You have to perceive it. We've wrenched this eloquent, sensitive bit of prophetic proclamation out of its context and reduced it to a soundbite, to a get-out-of-jail-free card for whatever we cook up is a great idea. New is a complicated word in the Bible and everywhere else. It's why we're spending the whole summer on a sermon series about all the places where where the Bible lifts up something new. But it's a complicated word. Does anyone remember New Coke? How did that go? Um, am I the only one who fears getting notice of a new software update that promises amazing things? New is often placed as the shiny, better option over against the old, tired, or routine. The promise of new often comes at the expense of the old. Nobody buys a used car anymore. We buy pre-owned cars. Uh, that, that's a marketing strategy that a lot of different products deploy. Though personally, I would stop short of certified pre-owned diapers, which is a thing, by the way. <laughs> old is often put in opposition to new. Many of you know that in fashion, Black is the classic. But then we were told a few years ago that green was the new black, and then pink, and then navy, and then gray were the new black, to say nothing of orange as the new black. But anyway, what is truly God's relationship with new? We are bombarded right now all over the church everywhere with all sorts of voices telling us that we have to come up with some shiny new thing because the old isn't working anymore. When Isaiah records God saying, I'm about to do a new thing, don't you perceive it? How do we know? Since new comes at us every day from every different angle, how do we sort what comes from God and what's just our 2016 version of New Coke? How can we tell if it's God's new thing or just my half-baked idea? Craig Barnes tells of a conversation he had with a seminary student of his. He writes, Martha Tidwell sat before me wearing a blue pantsuit and a weary face. Four years ago, she left her high-paying job as an accountant, having discerned with her church's help, that she was called by God to become a pastor. Her husband, Ted, was supportive, 
quit his job as well. They sold their house at a loss and moved them and their young family into a seminary apartment. Three years later, Martha graduates with honors. She's ready to serve as pastor. All she needs was a church. A year later, all those applications, not even one interview. She started wondering if she should get another accounting job. She was neither tearful nor angry as she told me this, Barnes writes. Mostly she was just confused. Had she and her church misread the will of God? There are lots of stories where people get to live their dream, but there are lots of other stories like Martha's that conclude with, oh, so this isn't going to happen. Now what? When faced with a dip difficult choice in life, we know how to pray, to read scripture, to meditate, to discuss options with those around us and especially in our community, to pray more, to listen for God's voice. We all know about the process of discernment. What we don't know and can never know fully is the will of God. The full text in Isaiah begins, do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. There is something tempting, frankly, about not remembering the past, just pushing on to the new thing. If your past has been painful or disappointing, this can be an invitation to freedom. But the context of Isaiah, the reference is to the poetic description of God's miraculous deliverance of the people at the Red Sea. Why would the prophet call on the community to forget such a joyful, liberating event? Then again, if you think about it, most of our joyful memories can also be causes of pain. The recollection of a lost loved one can bring fresh grief, even as we remember them in gratitude. The memory of a past success contrasted with a present failure can lead some people to despair. The point for Isaiah is that the community must not cling to its past, either in resignation or in nostalgia, must, but must always turn toward God's future, always trusting that God is doing a new thing. The issue of using Isaiah 43 to cover whatever new thing pops into our heads, is that's us rearranging our things for our purposes. These words were written by the prophet when the people of God were in exile. A people who were not trying to gain advantage, they were just trying to hang on. The text saved them because it drove them back into the trusting arms of God. This text isn't about supremacy or getting something we want. It's about utter dependency on God. Sometimes the most painful thing for you and me to do in life is to look for, expect, and trust God's new thing. So how do we know if it's God's thing or our thing? Does that happen only in hindsight? How do you know that whatever is new is God and not our agenda, our business, our direction, our decision, or our thing, but it really is God's? 
Thinking about his student, Craig Barnes wrote, Our real calling is to discern what we will do after what we thought should happen doesn't happen. The most important question is, now what? The God who is with us is not easily handled. Now what is where real discernment begins. God wills us to be led by cloud and fire that we cannot hold. When Paul sat down to write the letter to the church at Corinth, he was writing to a group of people who believed that they could not see any new thing that God was doing at all. As Walter Brueggemann has said, the problem with the church at Corinth was that they were majoring in the minor stuff and neglecting the major stuff. Paul takes this prophetic image of potter and clay, but Paul extends it by talking about the treasure in the clay pot. We have this treasure in clay jars, Paul writes, but we've confused the container with the stuff inside the container. Like a toddler who gets a great Christmas present, an amazing toy, but when it's unwrapped, all the toddler wants to do is what? Play with the box and the wrapping and the bow, not the toy. We think the clay pot is the real thing. That's what throws us off track as a community and as a church so often. We think the clay pot is the real thing, and we end up neglecting the treasure inside. So much of our talk about new thing is really talk about a new pot. It is rarely, too rarely, about the treasure God has given us. The treasure is the good news enacted in Jesus Christ, the one who reconciles us and liberates us to new life. This God shows up with what we most desperately need. The treasure is forgiveness in a society that holds grudges and keeps score forever. The treasure is generosity, surrounded by a culture that wants to focus on what we lack. The treasure of generosity leads us to give thanks for what we have in gratitude. The treasure is hospitality that welcomes us even when everyone else slams the door. The treasure is justice that always protects the most vulnerable first. This is God's new thing. This is the treasure. Brueggemann notes, everything else is a clay pot that is designed to hold and transmit this treasure. Everything else, the church and its ministers, its hymnals and liturgies, its budgets and programs, its congregations and presbyteries, its bells and bulletins and candles and music, its youth groups and mission trips, its quarrels and acts of mercy, everything else is a clay pot. Fragile, probably going to break, never fully able to contain the truth and richness of the treasure always in need of being made new. The temptation for us, Paul writes, when we are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, or struck down, is to give in to being crushed, driven to despair, forsaken, destroyed. But the treasure, 
The treasure prevents us from getting distracted by any mere vessel. No matter how important or historic or brand new, it's the treasure that draws the line against our overinvestment in clay pots. It is the treasure, not any clay pot or shiny container, that allows us, that frees us to be afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. It is the treasure that leads us to recognize that while we can make really great pots and really great churches and lots of new shiny things, the extraordinary power to change our life and our world belongs to God and we can never do it on our own. This is God's new thing. And this is the truth about the treasure There is not any single person, not old or young, not rich or poor, not conservative or liberal, not anyone who does not somewhere deep down where it matters yearn and eagerly await and hope for this news of God's reconciling, liberating, making whole love. In this context, there is not one of us who doesn't yearn for the new thing God is doing among us. Uh, there is an Anglican church uh, diocese in Canada that was sued for the long-term practice of abuse of children in their schools that happened a long time ago. The diocese lost the suit and had to declare bankruptcy. Basically, the church was wiped out. Payments were made. Apologies were extended. Then the day after the bankruptcy, the bishop called a press conference. He said, we have a book, a bowl, a table, and a cup. We're back in business. We have a book that tells the story of God's transforming love in Jesus Christ. We have a bowl where in vulnerability and awe we get to baptize. We have a table where all are welcome, and we have the cup of life which is poured out for forgiveness. The bishop told any of the clergy in the diocese they could go seek work elsewhere if they wanted. No one left. They all stayed. They did not lose heart. They were ready, even in that most unlikely and painful place, for God's new thing. Glad to be a fragile clay pot for God's treasure. Behold... God is doing a new thing is an invitation to discern that all roads can lead to God. Hard roads and happy roads and surprising roads can lead to God if we keep our eye on the treasure of God's forgiveness and generosity and hospitality and justice. This image that has been before you most of the morning is one of the best representations I know of God's new thing. In 1963, the Ku Klux Klan planted a bomb at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, which killed four little girls who were on their way to Sunday school that morning. News of the bombing reached artist John Petz in Wales. 
He quickly offered his services to create a replacement for the stained glass window in the church that had been shattered by the bombing. Within two years, Petz had delivered his gift, a defiant and heartwarming image of a black Jesus beneath a rainbow of racial unity, his right arm pushing away hatred and injustice, his left arm offering forgiveness. This is God's new thing. In a world of such discord and pressure and a sense that everyone is pitted against everybody else on something, this is God's new thing. In that time and place, no less than ours, they were afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Because here is Jesus offering a hand to stop oppression in its tracks, offering a hand of forgiveness to all who desperately need it. For each of us, for all of us together, this is God's always available, constantly renewing, indispensable, can't live without it, new thing.